This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The vast majority of parents are relieved and happy that their kids will be returning to school in the fall. There will be some safety measures in place. Staff and students must conduct a self-screen daily before attending classes. Students between grades 1 and 12 will have to be masked in indoor spaces with the exception of phys ed and while eating. And there are some major concerns about some of those extracurricular activities like gym and music. Uh, And here's what has me scratching my head. Why aren't vaccines mandated for teachers and students who are 12 and up and who are eligible? There are already nine compulsory vaccines So why is the COVID shot being treated so differently when it is so much more immediately dangerous? Looking at the whole basket of measures, let's bring in Sam Hammond, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Uh, My pleasure. So first of all, in general, what's your reaction to the measures that were announced some yesterday? And we just heard about uh, standalone HEPA filters for all educational spaces. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you didn't refer to it as a plan because we think what was released yesterday continues to be incomplete and inadequate. You know, it's a good thing. Uh, Let me say up front that Students from grades 1 to 12 and staff will have to wear a mask, but they forgot about kindergarten students. Uh, And uh, it's a good thing, uh, this additional funding for ventilation. Uh, But, you know, the minister keeps forgetting uh, that many schools actually started yesterday, uh, those who were on a balanced learning uh, uh, calendar. Um, But in in, in general, uh, there is very little uh, that is new in this plan compared to what uh, the minister announced numerous times over the past year, uh, including uh, before he closed schools in April, May, and June. Uh, so again, back to my question, there are nine compulsory vaccines, whether you're a student or a teacher. You know, what do you make of this hesitancy to mandate a COVID vaccine for those who are eligible? Yeah, it, it's a very good point. Uh, you know, we have not taken a position on whether vaccination should be a mandatory. It would make absolute sense that the government should be, uh, isn't really doing everything to ensure that everyone that can be vaccinated it is and, and tracking that. But ultimately, that's a decision that has to be made by this government in consultation with the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And as I said again today, they, they're not making that and uh, that decision Uh, and making it mandatory. Yeah, Sam, I've got to say, you know, um, you are not generally shy about telling the government what you think they should do. Um, So what do you think should be done on that front? Um, You know, it's, it's a, it's, I think the overwhelming majority uh, of our members, for example, won't speak for parents or students, but the overwhelming majority of our members uh, are, are trying to either have been vaccinated or trying to be to get vaccinated uh, as best they can. There is a small handful of our membership who are opposed to uh, vaccination. Uh, I'm not, you know, sure why outside of, you know, it's their body and they will determine uh, that. But I think in the, in the interest of safety across the province that everyone should be uh, uh, be vaccinated. Okay, I'll take that as uh, you are in favor of uh, mandatory vaccination, but uh, but don't want to upset some of your members. And, well, and yeah, I, I I don't know if I would go that far to say I'm in favor or we are in favor of mandatory vaccinations. I would say that that we absolutely agree uh, that it makes sense 
uh, and for the safety of everyone, that the more people who are vaccinated, the better. Um, in terms of, of some of the arrangements for extracurricular activities, I have heard epidemiologists say that in certain situations, like maybe um, band where you're dealing with wind instruments or maybe some gyms with, with something as contagious as the Delta variant, one kid could infect the whole class. Uh, I, you know, um, what do you make of that? Are you worried about some of these extracurriculars? Yes, abs- absolutely. Uh, we are worried, and for the same reasons that you just just highlighted uh, from from experts, it makes absolutely no sense to say that. Uh, you know, we wish that they had come out in this plan and said, you know, uh, there are mandatory lower class sizes. Um, and what they're saying is, you know, you we're going to cohort cohort students, uh, but when you're coming to school, we're going to keep the buses at full capacity, and now there can be. Uh, uh, sports activities and clubs and, and music band, as you, you highlighted. That's extremely concerning. We're not sure why they're loosening those restrictions. Uh, and if it's all to normalize COVID in schools or normal learning experience, um, it, it seems odd, quite frankly, and it goes against what we're seeing uh, everywhere else in the province as we you know prepare for what could be a fourth wave in this Delta variant. One of the other criticisms that I've heard about the whole thing is that it doesn't lay out, so what constitutes an outbreak and what is the response to an outbreak? Yeah, it, it, it says that that information will be forthcoming. Uh, and as I said, schools and some uh, some boards started yesterday and schools will start, I think, within, what, three, three, to, three to four uh, weeks. I mean, that's an extremely important part of this. And you know, number one, they didn't get the safety measures or a plan in place that, that we think is adequate. And two, uh, the, the, you know, the ministry and the medical officer of health keep saying that, you know, at all costs, we're going to keep schools open. And that's extremely concerning and problematic. Hmm. Um, I mean, every, everyone we want and everyone wants absolutely students to be in classes and in school, but at what cost, right? Yeah, and uh, people are are worried about, uh, say, if you have kids in school and uh, a kid who might be asymptomatic brings it home to a baby, uh, the result could be deadly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This is, you know, uh, we're not talking about, as you well know, the flu, uh, where, you you know, you're ill for 24 to 48 hours and you bounce back. We're talking about something, as you said, um, that is, is, could be lethal. Well, yeah, and the flu, depending on who you are and how old you are, the flu can be lethal, too. True. Just true. Uh, point, uh, making point. that point. Now, the other thing is, I see that staff and students must conduct a self-screen daily. I mean, I'm assuming that means one of those temperature checks when you walk in the door. So, is there a mandate if, if no. they... F- Go ahead. No, that, sorry. Uh, no, that's... nothing. In terms of that screening process, nothing has changed. Uh, since announcements that were made uh, throughout uh, last year, and that does not include mandatory uh, temperature checks before you go into school. It's a uh, um, self-screening process, and there's no, it's not mandatory, and there's no follow-up on it. Right, so it's just to ask you questions, how are you feeling? Uh, Pretty much, yes, and it's based on an honor system. Based on an honor system. So, uh, you know, this is stacking up uh, to be something that worries a lot of people. It is. It is. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that, uh, uh, you know, I would add that's add, added worry for people or for people to consider is the government keeps saying, you know, last year that they had the safest school reopening plan in, in the country. Uh, and schools in Ontario were closed more than any other province uh, in this country. And now, even as they said, uh, the minister said today that this is a safe plan uh, and they wouldn't open schools if it wasn't, but they're still offering online learning uh, and synchronous learning as an option. And I don't know why, if, if it's a safe plan. Hmm. Uh, and it was interesting. I mean, you know, social media, some of, uh, at least one of the, uh, 
foremost doctors that we've been hearing from uh, who was dying to send his kids back to school says he may reconsider now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I've, I've had uh, parents and members, uh, our members email me uh, with the same concern and saying that they are based on what was released and the fact that there's, there's hardly anything new in that plan that they're, they're reconsidering as well. So what is the bottom line on all of this for you and your members? Uh, well, I mean, as our members have done, uh, did all last year, right back to uh, March 2020, uh, they will show up for work and do what they uh, do as professionals and try to, to provide the best learning experience under very difficult circumstances yet again uh, for students across this uh, province. Okay, Sam Hammond, President of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you, Libby. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Well, as you've been hearing, there are a lot of concerns about this back-to-school plan. And there's a whole other aspect. I mean, a lot of our listeners are now grandparents as opposed to parents. A lot of them have just started seeing their grandkids again. So I'm wondering, does this change anything? Because there seem to be a lot of loopholes in this uh, back-to-school plan. I'd like to hear from you. I'd also like to hear what you think. I mean, given that school children and teachers already have to get a whole pile of vaccinations why the hesitancy about requ- requiring this one? Should it be mandated? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And again, I'd like to hear from you. Should vaccines be mandatory for everybody in a school setting who is eligible. And right now, I would like to bring in Ryan Imgrund. He is an educator in York Region and a biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 analysis for Ontario and for Canada. And also David Kravitz, the Chief Membership Officer at CART. CARP. Hi, guys. How are you? How are you doing? So let us begin with David, and uh, you've got your finger on the pulse of grandparents. Are a lot of people, you know, wondering how this will affect, you know, the families that they just started seeing again recently? I think everybody is wondering. I think everybody is concerned. Um, The problem is the data is very elusive and the data is very contradictory in and of itself. Um, I think as a general rule, everybody's going to have to make a decision as to what their own vulnerability is. If you're a grandparent who's healthy and you've had two doses uh, of the vaccine and you don't have serious underlying comorbidities, if you do have other concerns, even though you've had both vaccines, step one, talk to your doctor for sure. So I don't want to be, you know, glib about giving, you know, blanket blanket reassurances here, but generally speaking, uh, unvaccinated people over the age of 60, according to Ontario government website, are 15 times more likely to be infected than uh, people who have had uh, the vaccine. Um, But the breakthrough rate of infection in Ontario for people who have been vaccinated is less than 1% so far. So you could make the case there's nothing to worry about, uh, or as your previous, uh, um, you know, guest said, maybe it is lethal. I don't. I'm not as worried about it being lethal as about whether you can get, you know, the infection from the kids. Well, uh, in in terms of the breakthrough rate, there's a lot of misinformation around that. So let's bring in Ryan Imgrund, who is an educator in York Region and a biostatistician. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how are you doing today? Fine. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. So the the breakthrough rate, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so what we're seeing, um, at least here in Ontario, I've actually analyzed data going back to December 2020 up until July the 10th. Um, and what it shows, and I mean, and no surprise for this, is that um, the older you are, the more beneficial the vaccine is for you in terms of lowering your risk profile. If you look at, you know, someone um, that is in their like 80s, for example, it has drastic, drastic impact 
on your hospitalization, mortality, but then also case counts too. And when it comes down to actually getting COVID-19, if you're an 80-year-old and you get the actual vaccination, you have the same rate of hospitalization as an unvaccinated 30 to 39-year-old. It literally removes 50 years from your risk profile when you're an older individual and you get vaccinated. It's a very, very positive thing when the older population gets vaccinated. It doesn't mean that we don't have breakthrough um, like cases happen. They are going to happen, and they'll be more likely to happen the more transmission that we have. And that's my worry about this plan is I don't think it's sufficient enough to stop cases from going from the schools and then going back into people's homes. Uh, Ryan, you're a teacher, so I guess you're going back to school? Yep. I am. And what, how do you feel about that? Well, you know what? It's um, My main worry with this plan is it's very, very similar to the old plan we had. In fact, really, there's really nothing, you know, like earth shattering and brand new in this plan now that we didn't have last September. And yet things have changed a lot. We now have vaccinations. We now know that the COVID transmission is going to be predominantly airborne. The focus of this plan should have been ventilation and vaccination. The fact that we waited until like August to actually release this plan means that it's that really like any focus on ventilation is just way too late. And literally this document has three sentences on vaccination. And that's a really big problem because we know how beneficial vaccinations are. Okay. I mean, and again, to me, this is for both Ryan and, and David. It, it, I, I'm completely gobsmacked. I don't understand. You can mandate nine vaccines, but this one, none of that. I, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, Ryan. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me either. The fact that we have nine mandatory vaccinations for students to actually go into school, um, and yet we're not going to mandate one for, frankly, the biggest pandemic exactly. that, you know, we've ever seen. It makes absolutely no sense. This, this is the vaccination that should be mandatory for people returning, for students and also education workers. Uh, well, I, have, I have a question on that, though, Libby, and, and I'm, I'm asking this out of ignorance of, you know, my colleague here. I mean, this, the other mandatory vaccinations are well, uh, you know, they've been around for a long time and side effects, et cetera, are known. Is there, is there still some knowledge that's missing on the COVID vaccines as to safety of giving these vaccines uh, to children? No, I don't think there's any issue when it comes down to safety. In fact, okay. if you think about it Good. worldwide, I think worldwide we've vaccinated around 30% of the population worldwide. When we're looking at the worldwide population being around 8 billion people, we have literally vaccinated about 2.5 billion people with this vaccination. I don't think there's any other vaccine that has received this kind of an uptake in such a short time. I mean, sure, we've only monitored 8 to 9 months of um, like data, but if we haven't seen any problems yet, what studies of other vaccinations have shown is that we're not going to start to see, um, see issues now when it comes down to this vaccination. Okay, let's take a call from Rachel in Brampton. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking for my call. I am livid. I'm really livid because I have my, I kept my son for a year, uh, online. And then I finally fully have him vaccinated fully, ready to go to school. And they're not mandating the vaccine. What are they thinking? I mean, he's a special needs child and work closely with the teacher, teaching assistant. He can get a teacher or a TA not vaccinated. It's ridiculous. Like, I mean, I'm, t- I'm telling you, my blood is boiling. I, I don't blame you, Rachel. I mean, normally I try to be very balanced on all of these things, but this thing is like, it just makes makes no sense. No, like they're pushing everybody to get vaccinated. They're like every day, vaccinate, vaccinate. They're, they're not mandating this vaccine at school. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And you know what, Rachel? I, uh, I mean, this is a topic for another day, but... I don't know exactly what is motivating the government because they didn't get their majority from whatever fringe of their party uh, believes this. But all I can tell you is 
that there'll be blowback if all the people who are doing, I mean, just the kinds of things I'm hearing here on the show and in the street and meeting with friends, people are getting angry if they have done everything right and either their businesses or whatever it is is going to be held back because of a, a minority of people no, who aren't. Like, it's political. What they're doing is political. I mean, really? This is not, this is a, a pandemic. I mean, it's the biggest what we went through for two years, and they're not mandating the vaccine at school. Okay, Rachel, good luck with that. Thank Thanks you. for your call. Thank you. Okay, we've got Joseph in Mississauga, and Joseph is a vice principal at a high school. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Libby. Um, I'm, I'm glad I can, um, I can join you for, to make a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, I'm also a senior grandfather and uh, in my early 70s and still working, uh, lucky for me. But, you know, I, I, for the last two years, we've been dealing with COVID in the schools and virtual. And, you know, we've done everything that's mandated, including the self-testing. The, the gentleman that uh, represented the union, I, I think he, he's a little bit shallow in what he says because he wants to represent a specific idea. But if you remember back when... COVID first started and the vaccine first started, the teachers were all crying foul because they weren't first in line to, to be uh, vaccinated. Now they're crying foul because some of them don't want to be vaccinated. I think if they want the job, they should get vaccinated to protect the kids. Well, you know, he was he was uh, sitting on the fence there, but I think he made it really clear that his opinion is they should be vaccinated. But uh, well, I don't know. He doesn't. He's a leader. He should say that publicly. He should... You shouldn't uh, beat around the bush or sit on the fence. Uh, well, I think yeah. That's what's needed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and again, Joseph, um, you know, with and, with nine vaccines, other vaccines mandated in schools, it's really hard to understand why there is an exception for this one. Absolutely, but I think our government and and their defense, the like they're, I think they've been shell shocked because everybody's second guessing them, and also it seems to me that. The squeaky wheel, in this case, the, the minority that cries the loudest gets heard and gets acted on. And in this case, unfortunately, it's to the detriment of our kids and a lot of people in, in, uh, in our communities. Um, the, the, other, the other thing I just wanted to say very briefly is the self-testing. It's not a simple question of, are you feeling okay? This, this testing has been going on for a full year and there's an app that TDSB uses where you have to go through all the symptoms, uh, or no, yes or no, regarding the symptoms. And if you say yes to any of those symptoms, they're telling you to stay home. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, and I, I certainly wouldn't be cheating on a test, but when I see tests like that, I just go, no, 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 no without, you know, barely yeah. reading it. I, I, well, you're right. But it, I, I don't so, think you know, that... When you go on the app, and it, it's—I guess it records your daily your your daily responses as well. So I think, and if they don't have an app, they have to, they have to submit a paper. Yeah. it's a paper that lists all the symptoms, and on, on a daily basis they're checked as they come into the school. So it's it's you know I I think it's 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 pretty uh, stringent uh, in terms of control. Okay, Joseph, thank you for your call. You're very welcome, and I really appreciate the opportunity, and, and your show is great. Thank you, Liz. Thanks so much. Okay, well, there is a, a vice principal still working at the age of 70, and, and Ryan, I mean, we heard about a, a senator, Lindsey Graham, getting a breakthrough case. Uh, it seems to be the case that, uh, first of all, we know that older people have less uh, sturdy immune systems than younger people, but... You know, some people mount a big immune response, some people much less so. And the thing is that you don't know. And that's exactly it. We don't know exactly who is going to mount the, the proper immune response or not. I just wanted to address really quickly um, what the other gentleman brought up about um, symptom screening. I mean, there's a reason that 15,000 cases of COVID-19 entered our schools. And that's because the screening mechanism is not sufficient enough. And in fact, I'd even argue that with vaccination, about half the cases that they're finding now in those that are vaccinated are actually asymptomatic. So they're more likely to have asymptomatic infections go into a school because they don't screen up as having COVID-19. 
They're going to pass it on to the vulnerable, unvaccinated population who now no longer has to physically distance, who can now sing with masks off, who can eat inside of cafeterias, and they're going to bring it home to their parents. They're going to bring it home to their grandparents. And that's a big, big concern. And their baby sisters and brothers. Absolutely. And that's why we need to mandate vaccines. If you're going to do it for the other nine vaccines, why in the world would you not do it for COVID-19? It makes no sense. And the data just simply does not support it. One of the things really quickly is that like data out of the UK showed that with the old variant, you need 70% of the population vaccinated in order to be able to remove restrictions. We're not even at, we're at, I think, 62% right now of the whole population vaccinated here in Ontario. But with the Delta variant, it's much higher. You need 85, 90%. There is no way in the world without vaccine passports and without mandatory vaccinations that we will ever reach 85 to 90% of the entire population uh, vaccinated, especially because the under 12 is not even able to be vaccinated now. Well, Exactly. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to Dr. Peter Uni, and he basically predicted everyone who is unvaccinated will get it, period. Yes. And I think that's exactly where we're headed. I agree fully with that statement. This is a pandemic now of the unvaccinated. And un- unless we get the unvaccinated vaccinated or we place restrictions on them, there is no way that we're going to be able to reach that 85 to 90 percent threshold to be able for society and schools to return to some resemblance of normal. Okay, Ryan, uh, I'm going to give the last word to David Kravitz. I think that uh, I cannot disagree with uh, the need for mandating it, but I would point out, because you started out with, you know, what can grandparents do, that there's a difference between mandated and actual behavior. Every grandparent has the power and the right to say, uh, if my grandchild is not vaccinated, we're going to go back to FaceTime. Uh, you don't have to continue on as if nothing else is happening. So people can respond individually uh, to um, what's going on. I also predict there's going to be a big surge in testing in spite of the absence of mandates. My grandson goes to a day camp that is located in the same school that he's going to be starting senior kindergarten. He had a cold one day. She kept him home one day. They wouldn't let him back in the day camp without a COVID test. Uh, Nobody mandated that. The day camp said, sorry, you were homesick. We don't know what it is. We're not letting you back in here uh, until you've been tested. My daughter had to take him to, I think, Shoppers Drug Mart, get a swab, get it tested and produce that result before they would let him uh, go back. So I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, may I call it unmandated, you know, private conduct and behavior. I'm not, I'm not making light of the underlying problem. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's a lot that individuals can do to continue to protect themselves, uh, with the situation as it now stands. Well, and you know, David, uh, there are, I mean, if you're a private institution or a club or whatever, you can mandate whatever. And if, if you tell people that they've got to pay for those tests, I think that might encourage vaccinations. Because if you need a test with a quick result, it's 200 bucks or thereabout. Well, I think this one was a lot less, but it was maybe not the full test. It, it was, was not the PCR it test. It a negative result. I'm glad to say he's fine. But I'm just saying there's a lot of uh, individual responses. And as far as grandparents are concerned, I think that it's the power lies with the grandparents to say either I'm confident enough that everything's going to be fine, I'll watch it, or uh, back we go on FaceTime until you get vaccinated. Okay. Um, thank you so much, David Kravitz and Ryan Imgren. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Libby. And uh, take care. Yep. And uh, callers, you can hang on because we're going to be continuing a very similar conversation, you know, for a different venue. You're probably aware New York City, they are mandating vaccinations if you want to have a meal inside, if you want to go to a gym, if you want to go to a show. They're calling it the key to New York City. Should we and can we? Do the same thing here. We're going to be talking about that when we return. Callers, hang on. We're taking a break and we'll be right back.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. New York City's mayor is calling it the key to NYC pass. So the Big Apple became the first U.S. city to mandate proof of vaccination in order to gain entry to indoor dining, gyms, and shows. Should we do the same here? Multiple medical and business groups are calling for vaccine passports, but the province is steadfastly resisting the idea. And I'm not even sure if cities have any power to do anything like this here in Ontario, which is one of the questions I have for our next guests. Let me give you the number so you can weigh in. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to welcome Toronto City Councillor Stephen Holliday of Ward 2 Etobicoke and Deputy Mayor for the West Area of the City, and Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches, East York. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Great to be on the line with both of you. Yeah, it's uh, great to be on with my colleague, Brad Bradford. Uh, He's one of the most thoughtful councillors on council. So uh, we'll see if we disagree or agree today. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I think I know what Brad Bradford thinks. I'm not so sure what you think, Stephen Holliday. So what do you think? Well, um, you know, just thank you for the lead-in. A couple of thoughts. Uh, if you don't think we've already got a two-tiered system now, uh, think again. Um, I'm I'm obviously fully vaccinated, and I'm biologically different than other people, and so my risks are different in a material way. Nobody can argue that fact. And so far, we've got public confidence in these measures, and I think uh, we have to keep an eye on what the public feels because public health measures need to match and be proportionate to the level of risk. So we'll see what these variants do over time. But right now, I think it's very premature to consider um, implementing vaccine passports. But I think the policy creators need to keep an eye on this in case the situation changes. And I'm not so focused on the the concept of an actual passport, uh, more just on this idea, the policy that uh, vaccinated people will be allowed to go to certain things or be treated differently. And we've already seen some evidence of that when you talk to people like cruise ship lines, where you need to have extra insurance now if you're not uh, vaccinated, and college dorm rooms where they've uh, re- required their students to be vaccinated. Uh, yeah, and if you're a private business, you can do this. Uh, Councillor Bradford, Can does the city even have the power to do it? Well, that's the challenge is, uh, you know, New York City obviously uh, introduced this yesterday and that's coming forward. Uh, that's a very different jurisdiction and a different uh, state in a different context. So so our understanding is that that's not something within our purview. Uh, we have looked to the province to take the lead on that. That would be in their jurisdiction. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Councillor Holland and I, and I we, we talk a lot and we, we haven't had a chance to discuss this yet. Um, the points are well taken, but I think as we look down the road here uh, to a potential fourth wave, um, and, and experts are, are saying that that might be on the horizon, uh, it, it seems like the prudent thing to do uh, when you consider the alternative is, you know, lockdown measures and restrictions and all the things that we've been through before. That's been very challenging for, for our mental health, for our physical health, and it's been absolutely devastating for our business community and, and the economy. So, you know, when you put it in that context, if this is the next step of security that we can take collectively as a society to get out there and, and get those double doses. And, and, you know, frankly, thanks to all the listeners out, out there who have already done that. Uh, we, we've had great results here in Toronto. Um, but when we talk about community spread and we consider the risks, the risks of shutting down workplaces, uh, the risk of community spread in schools, um, the, the risk to the economy, to my mind, we need to make sure that, that folks are getting the vaccines, whether you call it a vaccine passport or just an email, as I received, as we've all received, that says yeah. you have had two doses. That's really what we're talking about here. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I talk to epidemiologists every day and you've just heard the head of the science table says everybody unvaccinated will get it. The variant is extremely contagious. 
and uh, you have business groups calling for some kind of proof of vaccination uh, because a lot of people are not comfortable. I mean, it's it's a bit moot now. Our numbers are low and we're outside. So a lot of people aren't that worried if they're going to be sitting on a patio outside, but a lot of people aren't ready to go inside to a restaurant, to go back to the gym, to do all of those things because they're saying, hey, I did my part. And I don't know who is standing next to me or who is, uh, you know, um, training me in the gym or giving me care for that matter. Stephen Holiday. Two points on that, Libby. I was talking to um, the, the owner of Cumin Kitchen on, on Danforth last week, and he's, he's experiencing exactly what you've described. Uh, patios are fantastic. People are enjoying Cafe Tio. They're happy to be outside with their friends. But you are not seeing the uptake on indoor dining. They will sit close if they're if you're if you're a restaurant that maybe have a, a garage door sort of on the frontage and you can kind of be patio adjacent. You will see those tables occupied, but not deeper uh, into the back end of the restaurant. So you're seeing that. And simultaneously, I was having a conversation with the uh, with a brewer um, uh, brewery in in East York, and uh, they instituted a, a mandatory. Uh, vaccination policy for their staff. They're, they are, of course, a private company. Um, but when I was speaking with him, he said the risk is just too high. You know, we cannot, we've got 50, 60 employees here. We cannot have a situation where somebody's coming in uh, and, and we have spread within the company and the business and we have to be shut down. They just can't afford to do it, not this far into the pandemic. So, you know, they exercised some leadership, brought that policy in, and uh, and that's how they're operating now. Yeah, so I'm I'm concerned though about this idea of a digital passport or even a piece of paper. I think if we move in any policy direction, and I I have to say it is possible if things change throughout the fall and winter. Why would we think we're different than any other jurisdiction in the world where they've seen an uptake in uh, the variant? Exactly. Hopefully it's just attenuated because our vaccination rates are high, but I am leery of the system. I think it's going to be based on the honor system because it's so easy to forge. And the kind of people that are going to run around uh, not telling the truth are the same ones that would be quick to forge a piece of paper to try to gain their freedom. But I, I think the big telling... You know, there was, be- just, there was just a, a charge uh, for some tourists who forged uh, vaccination papers. So I'm not sure that uh, that forging is is that much of an issue. And, and I don't think that, you know, for for people who are determined not to be vaccinated because uh, they believe this ridiculous stuff, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure the honor system is is a good idea. Well, I, I think it's going to be tough to really prove and enforce. And I think for, for, for practical reasons, we're going to have to rely on people's words, what, what they say. I think what's going to happen, though, is when the schools open up, you're really going to see the difference in the two worlds that we live in. Right now, uh, if you are fully vaccinated, there are exemptions if somebody in your family receives an exposure. I, I can imagine the day when my uh, youngest comes home from school and we get that awful letter that says, congratulations, you're now on two-week quarantine because a classmate got sick. At least the rest of the family gets to move on with their lives. And I think that's what you're going to see is the fully vaccinated people in our society will get to continue to move on their, with their lives throughout this winter. And those that did not get vaccinated are ones that are going to be subject to a lot of health restrictions, including staying at home for two weeks. And that, I think, is going to drive some change. But it's going to take the schools opening up, and it's going to take some changes in the numbers to really push those people to be fully compliant. Well, also, and make, maybe making them pay for their tests, I'm going to take a call from Murray and Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good. Uh, on your uh, last speaker's comment, um, if your child comes home with a virus, you should be uh, forced to stay home for the two weeks, too, because although you're not going to get sick, you still get the virus and you pass it on. But my uh, what I called for, I think Justin Trudeau should be doing something with passport. And I think he should be putting a bare minimum down as to what requirements are, and then Alberta wouldn't be all treating this thing like a flu. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of, there are people who are calling for us to uh, close the border to travelers from Alberta. Yes, exactly. Because they, they don't think it's a big deal anymore. It's just like getting the flu. So 
Uh, where's that leave the rest of us? Well, don't don't even get me started on that. You don't have to quarantine <laughs> if you've got the thing now in Alberta. Yeah, Marie, thanks. Uh, thanks for your call. I know call. we all want to stay in our lanes here, uh, uh, so I'm going to do that. But, but Libby, you just said the, the idea of not quarantining when you know you have it, that's, uh, that's very problematic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand how they, they allowed that to happen. And I, I think the rest, you're seeing the rest of the country outraged with that type of a decision. Yeah, but, you know, um, I've got to say this, and you are both politicians, and I am frankly surprised at the vehemence of the kind of reactions that I'm hearing, you know, everywhere I go from vaccinated people about the inability to know if your caregiver or uh, whoever is vaccinated and and all of that kind of stuff and, and people who want to know if the person serving them is vaccinated. And I think that, um, you know, the epidemiologists say that there will have to be a distinction between vaccinated and not vaccinated. And I think the blowback will be on politicians if they refuse. Libby, you've hit uh, a key point. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about passports, but we still haven't even sorted out really fundamental employer-employee related issues. There is still that discussion about whether or not an employer can compel their employees or modify work or require vaccines for certain jobs. But back that up one step, employers can't even demand the information from their employees because of the information protections that we have in Ontario with respect to private health information. I think that is a huge public policy question that needs to get answered. It's kind of like the top of the pyramid. You get that question answered, and then all of the other policies can begin to fall in place. Well, and, in, uh, I'm, I'm in, in, up. in long-term care, they are now required to disclose not to the clients, but to uh, their employers. And if uh, they aren't vaccinated or won't disclose, they've got to take education. That might be a little painful. Uh, and employers are asking. Uh, and uh, it's, I guess it's voluntary to disclose. And you know what, though? We, we are, this is an unprecedented moment in history, certainly in the last century to the degree and the extent of which we've suffered with COVID-19. And I think businesses are going to do what they have to do to survive like they have for the past year and a half. And uh, like, I, like I was talking about that experience uh, with a brewery earlier, you know, whether or not, you know, legally uh, that, that is something that they can compel their employees to do, they are making the calculation of business decision that it is so important for the public health and safety of the other employees, for the safety of the customers, and for business continuity, it is a calculation of risk. Uh, can I afford to not have my staff vaccinated? And I think increasingly you're going to see business leaders stepping up and making that call and making that decision uh, because it's the right thing to do from a public health perspective and uh, certainly from business continuity as well. Okay. Uh, we've got to move along. Thank you so much, Brad Bradford and Stephen Holiday. Appreciate your time. Great to be with both of you. Thanks Thank a lot. you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, another thing inspired by New York City, and that is our left turn calming pilot project. We'll hear all about it from uh, our transportation czar, Barbara Gray, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Attention drivers. Another traffic-related pilot project is underway in Toronto. It's called the Left Turn Calming Project, and it's aimed at curbing the number of left turn collisions at signalized intersections. And those collisions are one of the most common causes of roadway fatalities and serious injuries to people walking and cycling. So they cause 18% of those serious, serious injuries to people walking and 8% uh, for those cycling. So what it's going to involve are rubber speed bumps installed at eight intersections to start with throughout the city. And presumably they will encourage drivers to approach the crosswalk at a sharper angle 
And instead of cutting across intersections diagonally, and that results in slower speeds and better visibility of people walking and cycling. And uh, it seems those measures have proven to be effective in New York City. Let's bring in Barbara Gray, General Manager of the City of Toronto's Transportation Services. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a sunny day. Can't complain. Can't complain. So um, the the results of these measures had in New York City were really pretty impressive, right? Yeah, they were. You know, intersections, you really, you got all the pieces. Uh, intersections are so complicated. Uh, lots of decisions for drivers to make and having them take that intersection at a slower speed and a, and a sharper angle really gives the pedestrians uh, the ability to be seen. And they take it at a slower speed, which means that if there if there ever is any contact, it's certainly not going to result in a um, in a in a uh, crash or a, a fatality or serious injury. So New York has seen them work really well. Washington D.C. has also seen them be pretty effective, and um, and we think it's uh, a really good reason to try them here. We've looked at the data, we've looked at the evidence, and and we feel pretty confident they're going to make a make a difference. And we are uh, the queen or the king of pilot projects here in Toronto and Ontario. Yeah, they, we seem to like to test things out before we go full bore. But I, but I think that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, some of these changes uh, take a little getting used to for people. And and actually, as with all Vision Zero projects on road safety, we really do like to be data driven and look at those things and invest in those things that we know are making a difference. So, how did you pick the intersections, and and what are some of the intersections? Sure. So the ones that we've installed in July are at Finch and Sandhurst Circle in Scarborough North and Shepherd East and Kennedy in Scarborough Agent Court. Uh, and then in August, we're going to be installing some at Eglinton and Brimley, Victoria Park and Shepherd East, Victoria Park and Lawrence East, Lawrence East and Curlew, uh, Don Mills and Seals, and Mount Pleasant and Merton. And uh, the locations were selected based on collision history. Uh, the severity of collisions occurring at those locations, uh, the findings of past safety reviews, including past impacts that we believe will be made better by this type of installation. So those left turn crashes. So uh, a lot in Scarborough, is that because uh, those some of those streets are, are they're almost like a highway? They're, they're pretty wide intersections. Yeah, the infrastructure is pretty wide out there. And, and so that's some of the some of the situations. It's also a lot of um, you know, faster moving traffic, uh, and, uh, and increasingly with lots of people on buses, more people walking around in the area. So it seemed like those were good, good locations to try out. Hmm. I'm a little surprised about the Mount Pleasant and Merton one. Well, uh, that one's in St. Paul. Yeah, we've had, you know, there are certain locations where you, again, following the data, you see the type of collision uh, that would be made better. And we do want to try them in all types of situations. One of the benefits of doing pilots is we're able to um, to test them in a variety of locations. And so that one is definitely different than the, than the um, Scarborough intersections, but we think it will help solve the problem there. Uh- Here's one thing that I see with a lot of left turns that to me is problematic. So there are a lot of places that I end up driving where a left turn is certainly legal, but basically impossible and they don't have advanced greens. And what ends up happening is you wait, you wait, you wait. When the light turns yellow, uh, somebody who's going straight floors it and keeps going through and, you know, you could be there till the cows come home and you're not going to turn unless you turn on a red light. I think you put, you make a, a great point, Libyan. Uh, as you know, I come from out west uh, most recently and, and we did use uh, those phase signals a lot more frequently out there. And I know my uh, my head traffic engineer, Roger Brown, and I have been talking a bit about that. There are many, many intersections where that type of improvement, uh, I think, would make a, a huge difference. We are also, as you might remember from our, our congestion management plan that we rolled out last year, we're also going to be rolling out a bunch of adaptive signals, which are also going to be uh, reactive to the existing traffic patterns uh, on the street. So that will help uh, in that regard, just in terms of managing traffic to the intersections. As you know, some locations, uh, one, one road is uh, much busier and much heavier traffic volumes than the other, and then uh, something changes, work lets out or school lets out, and, and the volumes change. So those adaptive signals are really going to help with managing congestion. So does that mean we can look forward to more advanced greens? Uh, I, I think so. You know, it's complicated with, with signals always uh, is a give and get. 
scenario, right? Where you know you're giving green time to one direction and the other time has to other other uh, route has to has to wait. Um, so that's what the signal engineers do is they look at all those uh, the complexity of all those turning movements and, and uh, green times. But certainly there are locations where, to your point, there's a lot of left turning traffic. And, uh, and having a separate signal cycle would really help to um, manage that a little bit more effectively. So that's what Roger and I were talking about not too long ago. Okay. And so, uh, again, with this pilot project, uh, how long is it going to last for? So we're going to put them in for a year. We'll evaluate them in 2022. We do before and after studies uh, to evaluate them. And uh, if, they, if they work, we're trying a couple of different types of products so that we can uh, make see what holds up best for winter maintenance, because as you know, there's going to be snow. We can be assured of that. And uh, and so that will be another factor that we, we put into our report when we come back and, and give council the full story next year. So we'll evaluate it and come back as part of our Vision Zero report in 2022. Okay. I want to ask you about something else. We have like 30 seconds left. Got it. So uh, I take Christie a lot. It's a big hill. And there's a new sort of speed bump in the bike lane. And there, there aren't that many cyclists because it's a very steep hill and the speed bump, especially in night is very hard to see. And I think dangerous for cars. And I've, I've only seen one like that ever anywhere. Hmm. It, uh, I'll have to look into that. I don't know that specific location. I know that when we have a situation where we might have an accessibility, like a, somebody dropping off, somebody who needs to get to the, uh, the sidewalk and there's a bike lane. Sometimes we will put in uh, what what looks like a speed hump, but is sort of a level crossing. Often for accessibility reasons, we'll do that. Uh, but we'll we'll certainly go take a look at that if it's uh, if it's uh, causing a challenge or needs some more reflective tape. We can certainly do that. Christy and Tyrrell. Christy and Terrell, you got it. Okay, Barbara okay. Gray. Hey, we'll have you on more often if you, you can look at at my 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 personal pet peeve intersections. Uh oh, that uh, was a bad plan. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much, Barbara Gray, the general manager of Toronto Transportation Services. You're most welcome. Thanks, Libby. Bye bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.